Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Connecticut has relaxed some COVID-19 restrictions, and more residents have been vaccinated in recent weeks. This as the state passes 300,000 cases since the pandemic began. Today, where we live, Governor Ned Lamont joins us to talk about this milestone and the next months ahead. Now, do you have a question for Governor Lamont? Here's the number to call in, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Governor Lamont joins us now on Zoom. Governor, how you doing? Good morning, Lucy. Uh, we know the one month or one year anniversary, rather, of Connecticut's pandemic shutdown was earlier this month. Uh, we know the pandemic changed your job considerably. So what did you reflect on when we reached that one year date, Governor? I reflected on the fact that um, we were hit. We were hit hard. We were hit early. Uh, nobody knew anything. Washington, D.C. was asleep at the switch. And um I thought Connecticut really stood up. I thought our hospitals uh, helped take the lead, our life sciences, bioscience, uh, Yale, New Haven, UConn, Jackson were extraordinarily helpful as we had to uh, you know, do this on our own. We found uh, some business folks that helped us secure PPE, in particular masks, when there was uh, no such thing as a stockpile in Washington, DC. And also think about um, the incredible tragedy of um, 7,000 plus fatalities. Uh, we were hit particularly hard. And I think uh, in part, Lucy, that's why Connecticut recovered particularly well. Um, you know, governor of Arizona said, I can't take my folks in Arizona to take it seriously. They know every somebody's lost a job, but they don't know somebody who's lost their life. And um, we knew here in Connecticut, we knew people who lost a job and we knew people that lost their lives. So Connecticut took the lead on this, took it well. And I think that served us uh, over the last uh, eight or nine months. Oh. Do you have any regrets or things you would have done differently when you look back over uh, the leadership that you've shown over the last 12 months, Governor? Well, um, certainly, if we had done everything a month earlier, uh, we would have been a month better off. If we had started trying to secure masks in um, January and not February, um, uh, if I could have convinced everybody to stay at home in uh, January and not in uh, early March, uh, those things would have made an enormous difference. But uh, I don't think we could have done that. I, uh, I can't tell you stay at home when you, you there's something going on in Wuhan and Seattle and you don't quite know what it is. I wouldn't have had the um, you know moral authority to um, you know take have people take the urgency of this as serious as they could. But that's those are the things that would have made a difference. You know, we were slightly fortunate, I would say, in that we did things um, alongside New York and New Jersey, and they were about three weeks ahead of us in the COVID pandemic back in March and April. So that did put us um, ahead of the curve compared to our peers, which was very helpful. 
I'm glad you brought up uh, what neighboring states uh, were doing and how you all tried to work in tandem. We know uh, just last Friday, I believe, a lot of the COVID restrictions have been relaxed in terms of capacity and gatherings can be larger. Obviously, bars are still closed, but New Jersey's governor says high cases there mean that the state won't relax restrictions. So why deviate from that regional approach now? Look, I um, we've we've maintained, you know, Joe Biden called Texas governor Neanderthal. I've joked uh, I'm a Neanderthal with a mask. I'm doing the things that work and uh, maintaining the mask um, uh, mandate as long as I can or a little longer. I've got to negotiate with legislature on that. The six foot of social distancing, especially in places like restaurants. So you're right. Well, I said restaurants and retail stores can open at 100 percent. For many restaurants, that was not a big change. And they understood it because they know that people are not inclined to go into a restaurant if they see it's really crowded indoors or even people aren't uh, being respectful of the mask. At least when they're walking between tables. So I really wanted to emphasize the things that work and are enforceable. And, uh, you know, unlike New Jersey, we did keep in place uh, 11 o'clock curfew um, for reasons I think many people understand. This week, the Hartford Current reported that Connecticut ranked seventh nationally in daily cases per capita over the last week. That's from CDC data. And the weekly positivity rate has increased this month. Deaths related to COVID-19 are slowly rising. Hospitalizations have have plateaued. Are you concerned? Should we be concerned when we hear about these new variants also in our state? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, look at Brooklyn and Queens and uh, southern New Jersey. Uh, There, those variants um, are are, are spiking up. Um, And, uh, you know, I've seen this movie before. Look where we were exactly a year ago. We were um, New York City sneezes and we catch cold. So, yeah, I watch this carefully, but I also know that, um, you know, we're not Europe, which has been a crystal ball. We've got, um, you know, over a third of our people have had their um, first vaccination. Uh, and probably when you count, uh, Lucy, the folks who are previously infected, younger folks, it's, I bet it's closer to 50 percent. So I'd like to think that we're ahead of this um, these these potential variants out there. And, and remember, um, so far, it seems that the vaccinations work against most of the variants that we hear out there. When I mentioned the new variants, uh, how is the state tracking them, including this New York variant? Um, I, I can tell you that um, I talked to folks like uh, Scott Gottlieb and Zeke Emanuel and uh, Jeff Zients, who runs the COVID um, force for the White House. So they, they are uh, monitoring what's going on in different regions. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, you said, you know, we're we're relatively high now in terms of uh, um, confirmed infections per 100,000. Um, a, we do a lot more testing than they do in Mississippi. But more importantly, our region is, um, you know, being hit a little bit by some of these variants. We're low compared to our neighbors, but we're high compared to the rest of the country. So um, we're tracking this carefully. We're doing as much of the genetic sequence as we can to uh, test this on our own. And um you're right. The UK variant is uh, going to be probably a bigger, bigger percentage of our um, of our infections over the course of the next month. But the vaccines work. And when I mentioned the variants and how the state's tracking them, I understand that Yale and Jackson Lab have been looking at new variants, but there's no formal agreement. So how close uh, is Connecticut to launch a statewide genomic surveillance project? 
Uh, ask Josh, I think our um, main limitation is capacity right now. Uh, doing the genetic sequencing to see whether this is South African or uh, Brazilian uh, seems to be a complicated process. So I don't know whether we've done um, you know, a few hundred of these tests and extrapolate from there, but we are doing more just so we stay ahead of this variant every day. Again, you can join our conversation if you have a question for Governor Ned Lamont, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I wanted to talk about how vaccinations are going, uh, Governor Lamont. Uh, you know, the New York Times has these great graphics on its website about vaccinations across the U.S., and I thought it was interesting. Uh, one of the maps, uh, Connecticut shares a space with Idaho and Maine as the only states not prioritizing high-risk adults for COVID vaccines. Do you still stand by your decision to do an age-based distribution plan? Yeah, but I'm gonna take issue with your um, question. Uh, just remember that um, the overwhelming majority of uh, comorbidities are related to people who are um, 65 and above, then 55 and above, and now 45 and above. So. Um, I think you're going to find that when we prioritize age, um, we are taking care of those not only had comorbidities, but the most risk of um, complications and hospitalizations. And um, I, I do think that, um, you know, you can go to how do I jump ahead of the line dot com down in New York. Everybody's playing games. And, um, you know, I used to be a smoker and um, uh, ways that uh, the line is being jumped and it's um we have really been prioritizing based on age, as you say, Lucy. People have been honoring that. We have a much higher percentage of our older population vaccinated because um, other people can't can't game it. And um, I think that serves us well. And comma, in less than two weeks, it's gonna be open to everybody. And our hospitals are doing outreach now to the folks they think are most uh, severely at risk to make sure they come in and get vaccinated. So let's spend some time on this. You said you take issue with the way I asked that question, but there are many people in our state who are not over 65 or over 55 or over 45 who have high risk conditions. Uh, Kaylee tweeted at us, people as young as in their 20s, including her, have been told by their doctors they're high risk. They should continue to lock down and isolate. And what are you doing to support them? We know that isolation this past year has been a detrimental thing for many people. I would just say that um, uh, the majority of folks with those comorbidities um, uh, in the are in the 45 and above category. Um, we've got work to do. I, I would tell that um, your listener um, within two weeks, um, well, she or he will be able to uh, get the testing as well. And remember the CDC um, guidelines for what they quote unquote called, um, you know, comorbidity or high risk included mild obesity, included smoking, and included over half of the population of the state of Connecticut. So um, I could have prioritized all them. And then I'm not really prioritizing anybody because there's so many people, um, you know, going to the gate at the same time. Look, my heart goes out to the person that uh, texted you that. And I know um, staying close to home for another um, two or three weeks until you can get the vaccine is um, incredibly painful, but uh, we're getting there. We're getting there faster than any other state in the country. Mm. 
Uh, when you talk about the vaccine distribution plan and uh, members of your team, everyone's really positive. The fact that doses, of course, that the supply has increased compared to uh, just a, a few months ago. Uh, but so many residents, Governor, are frustrated when it is their time to sign up. The, the system is very fragmented. It takes them a long time to try to find a vaccine. I mean, what can you tell people about this process to make it easier for them? And not everyone has time, multiple devices on the, on, to try to find a vaccine uh, when you've got CVS and Walgreens as the VAM system. People can call up Hartford Healthcare or Yale New Haven Health and, and people yeah, are still I waiting. Hear. I mean, I would say, um, you know, look at Florida, look, look at those places where they opened it up to everybody, a little bit of first come, first serve. You saw those long curling lines, um, you know, seniors waiting for hours in the hot sun, and then they finally get there and find out, oh, sorry, we're out for today. Well, we're not um, allowing that to happen. Uh, I, I understand the frustration. That's why we we opened it up on a um, sort of every two or three weeks to a narrower cohort. Uh, you're right. Um, those first uh, week or so, everybody's uh, wants to get vaccinated at the same time. Uh, but um, then by the second or third week, you have more uh, availability. Uh, I, I, I get it. The um, I don't know when Joe Biden said we're going to set up a website to make it easier for you. I, I had a little shiver. I got to admit, um, but. Uh, Right now, my advice to you would be, um, you know, go to CDS, go to um, Walgreens, uh, go to VAMS. Uh, you know, we can direct you based upon zip code and you go to our site, the VAMS site, where the available um, uh, vaccines are and get you onto that CDS site. It's not something um, we totally control, Lucy. Remember the feds, they direct money to the pharmacies and, and, they, and the pharmacies do their own um, allocation, their own um, appointments. So it's not something we totally control, but it's something I got to make easier. Um, and I don't want to be disrespectful, but the younger the age group, the easier it is for them to do it online. Uh, Molly tweeted at us. Uh, she wanted to share, I think challenges will remain as long as you ask people to be in charge of making their own appointments. Vaccine vaccines need to get to people without them needing to do anything. So how can Connecticut make that work in the next few weeks as more doses come online, Governor? I think Molly's half right there. I mean, for the worried well, that group that's sitting there refreshing on their um, uh, on their VAMS website at 12.01 in the morning, um, they seem pretty capable of getting their own uh, appointments. I really worry about the underserved communities, the black and brown communities, the folks that have been hardest hit by COVID, the folks who are most at risk. And there, I've got to continue to do better. And um, Molly's absolutely right. We don't sit around waiting for you to make an appointment. We take that mobile van uh, right to your community. We have people dialing out to get you to come in, to make an appointment for you, to make that appointment for you. We write out the appointment to make it easier. And uh, look, we got a long way to go. Uh, we prioritized, um, you know, probably the 50 most vulnerable uh, SVI, socially vulnerable of uh, districts. And that represents about 25% of our folks. Last I saw, you know, they've, they've had 22% of the vaccine. So it's not 
equal yet, but we're going to do more than equal. We're going to continue to try and make progress there. There are a lot of people critical about this plan or even how the state uh, tried to reach out or maybe didn't do enough to reach certain communities. We spoke to State Senator Douglas McCrory on where we live just last week, and he did not give high marks to the state and the Department of Public Health for vaccine outreach and access to certain communities. This is what he told us. Always have to be an extension of the governor's authority. Why don't we look at what's what's good? codify it. What needs modification? Modify. What isn't applicable? We can leave behind. But let's start that process so that by April 20th, we're ready to move forward as a state. And that's the wrong clip. Here's Senator McCrory. We know this issue was coming. I think we should have did a better job of planning. I don't think we did a good job of outreach. I don't think we did a good job of educating the communities about this vaccine. And therefore, you saw communities, especially communities where people were a little hesitant. Mm. Governor Lamont, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, the first clip when Doug is saying, let's, um, you know, let's get the legislature and, and codify some of these things. You've been in session since early January. Feel free to uh, step in. The water's great. I, I, I'd love your support and codify um, those that you should think should be. Look, in terms of uh, the outreach, um, what I can tell you is we have um, thousands that we've, we've made 300,000 calls have come into our 211 center. We have made thousands of calls um, calling out to people, telling them how important it is. We've had friends and friends of friends calling um, in to make sure people um, know what they want to do. Uh, we prioritized, uh, say, nurses in the nursing homes. Uh, we brought the vaccine to them. This was uh, two months ago. We said, you've, you've, this is the right thing to do for you and your family, and uh, not to mention the folks in the nursing home. And say a third of the people said, I'll get vaccinated, and two-thirds said, you know, I think I'd like to wait a little bit longer. We came back three weeks later, and another third got vaccinated. So we are going to keep coming back until everybody gets vaccinated. And I, I think, uh, Lucy, this is a problem that's going to actually get a little tougher over the next month when people start feeling a little um, more relaxed and maybe younger people don't feel the urgency to get vaccinated. Um, I'm going to have to work really hard to make sure we get up to 80, 90 percent people vaccinated. So I can use your help there. Lee's calling in with a question for Governor Lamont. You can too, 888-720-9677. Lee, go ahead. Hi, a uh, New Yorker who admires uh, the governor's leadership. Question for you. Next time we have a respiratory disease on the horizon, and it's a January like it was last time, can we do a mask mandate, which is a low-cost, uh, you know, early threat uh, approach, rather than a full lockdown, maybe even not have a lockdown, get people to wear masks? I think... Um that's something we got to look at, to tell you the truth. Obviously, when things are really severe, um, having people shelter at home, be at home, not interface with all their friends, even with a mask, um, probably makes sense. But I think we've also realized there's nothing more impactful than wearing the mask. Uh, so um, if, if you that, that's why here at the state of Connecticut, we're relaxing um, the capacity restrictions, but maintaining the mask. That's why I worked like heck to get our schools open in September when people were a little anxious about that. But we mandated the mass. The mass is the thing we realize is the best defense we can play. And the vaccine is the best offense. 
Uh, we're going to take some more calls with Governor Ned Lamont here on Where We Live. The number 888-720-9677. Back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking with Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. If you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Diane's calling in from Avon. Diane, go ahead. Hi, Governor. First of all, I wanted to tell you that you have done an outstanding job. I can't even imagine all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on. Some of the questions that I had, you already answered on the show, but I did want to ask, um, you know, I've been vaccinated. I did go through the tedious steps to try and get my spouse um, an appointment, and he got his first vaccination yesterday. Um, We're waiting for our adolescent to be able to be vaccinated because she has um, an asthma issue, so that puts her at higher risk. But um, my question is, You know, with the relaxation of all the restrictions and the capacity with the restaurants and people are eating and they have their masks off, are you nervous that this is going to be a spike? And what do you expect to have happen if you see a spike? Like, what will be the reaction? Are we going to roll back? Um, I'm sure you have a plan B in place in case. Just wondering. Yeah, no, thanks for that question, Diane. And uh, I think I'm paid to be nervous. So um, first of all, isn't it sort of liberating getting uh, that vaccine? It doesn't mean we relax our caution or put down our guard, but um, I had my second shot uh, 10 days ago and it um, feels good. I think seniors do feel a little more comfortable getting out and seeing their grandchildren. I think that's uh, extraordinary positive. Um, So far, we haven't had to roll back. I've opened pretty cautiously going back to May 20th. I avoided what, you know, other states were doing. Let's have a pause. Let's stop. Let's start. Let's roll back. Um, We haven't been perfect, but I've tried to be consistent on that. I hope that um, what we've done in the last week when it comes to uh, restaurants and stores um, works, which is um, six foot of social distancing, really important and wearing the mask. I think those are the two prime things that are gonna make a difference. If New York City goes on fire again, like happened a year ago, and all of a sudden it starts coming up that Metro North corridor, you're right, we'll have to uh, you know, take a second look at where we are. I don't think that's gonna happen. I think probably close to 50% of our people uh, at this point have either been vaccinated or previously had a, a mild infection, so they have some antibodies. So I'd like to think we're going to stay ahead of this virus. Uh, Earlier, we heard uh, State Senate Minority Leader Kevin Kelly, that clip played an error, but he was referring to uh, the emergency uh, authority that you've had over the last year. And now uh, the current and others have reported the State House representatives will vote tomorrow on whether to extend your emergency powers, uh, at least for a little bit longer. So uh, tell us some more about why this extension is needed, Governor. Um. I think specific to public health, it's necessary. Um, look, you just heard, uh, you know, Molly and Diane say, what happens with these variants? I see that you've got parts of Brooklyn and Queens with a 15% infection rate. What happens if it comes up um, to Connecticut? Uh, what are we gonna do? And at that point, um, 
we may have to change course. Uh, at some point, uh, we may have to um, accelerate our vaccination program when we get another 200,000 doses from J&J, &J, which looks like could happen um, in the next month. So we want to make sure we have some flexibility when it comes to public health. Um, so that's really important. Um, you know, going forward, like I said, if um, the legislature says, uh, I, I don't like this ma mask mandate or I, I'm ready to open up the bars or if they have any specific objections, you know, they're in session. They, they can step up. I, I, I wish we'd talk about it first, but um, that's certainly their prerogative. Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mary's calling in from Simsbury. Mary, go ahead. Hi, um, Governor Lamont, first of all, thanks for all the great work you're doing here in the state. My question is, I have a 99-year-old mom who has her vaccination, is dying to get back to her senior center, and it seems to be the last uh, group that is getting any kind of opening. I was wondering two things. When do you foresee giving the thumbs up for senior centers to open? And the second thing is, are you looking at maybe a vaccine passport to ensure their safety and to make them feel safer going into these buildings? But it's been a while since they've had that contact. Zoom has gotten old for them. And um, I know every day my mother asks me, when are they going to open it? And I'll uh, hang up to have you answer that question. Thank you. Yeah, Mary, God bless your mom. Uh, let me give her a call on her 100th birthday. Um, let me think about the senior centers. I hadn't quite focused that now with more and more of our seniors vaccinated, um, they were um, not not open for business. Um, and, uh, you know, in our nursing homes, for example, we're now allowing visitations because uh, people have been vaccinated. So I think that's, um, that's really key to mental health. Um, uh, the vaccination passports is interesting. I've had a fair number of conversations about that. Um, something we're going to look at, not now, because right now not everybody's eligible for the vaccines. So that would be fundamentally unfair. But within a month or two when, um, you know, broad cross-section of people have um, are vaccinated or at least have the opportunity to be vaccinated, um, I think local businesses, for starters, are going to probably take the lead on this. I noticed that... Um, Carnival Cruise Line is launching their first cruise for vaccinated only people. You know, remember the cruise lines got hit really hard a year ago, so they have to earn back people's confidence. I've talked to uh, folks in the Restaurant Association, you know, they're thinking out loud. They're saying, you know, tw 25 years ago, we had a smoking and a non-smoking section. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a vaccinated and an unvaccinated section. Um, yeah. So, these are the ways that people are beginning to think about the nature of the vaccination passport or vaccination uh, authentication. And uh, we got to make sure we do it, you know, respecting civil liberties and people's privacy. But um, I think you're going to see a lot of creative ideas coming out of it. And finally, Mary, that'll give more people an incentive to get vaccinated. You know, if um, you're a white male Republican, you feel a little grumpy about getting vaccinated. Maybe NASCAR says you got to get vaccinated and come in and see a race. Maybe some more people will get vaccinated. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. We just have a couple minutes left uh, with Governor Lamont. Uh, a lot of people want to know about vaccinations, but I wanted to talk about something else. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, the state has reached a deal with the two tribes in our state uh, to expand gambling. This would allow online sports betting. Can you talk about why this is necessary, Governor? 
Yeah, Lucy, um, it, it's, you know, it's something that's been on and off negotiations going on a decade. Um, uh, if we've learned one thing over the course of the last 12 months is that more and more of the world is going virtual, telehealth, um, telecommuting, teleeducation, and there's gambling and uh, is no different. I mean, uh, you're, you're seeing what's going on at the casinos themselves is, uh, you know, not ramping up at this point. And iGaming, they call it, is um, taking off in different parts of the country. So in order, you know, to work with our tribal partners, to give them um, that opportunity, and to work with the uh, Lottery of Corporation itself, which is by the state, um, we thought it was good that they be able to, um, you know, compete and bring gaming into the 21st century. You know, as an aside, I can tell you it raises um, a lot of money for the state as well, things we can invest back in social services. So we're going to do it cautiously, but we're going to do it. And I really applaud our partners for um, sitting down at the table and getting it done. Uh, people are concerned that when you uh, enable gambling to be on any smartphone or laptop, that this is going to really increase problem gambling, Governor. Um, I, I tell you, I, I think it's happening. Uh, we can pretend to, that, that it's not. Um, I can tell you that um, they're going to other states. They're going to Rhode Island, you know, right now to uh, do this. I can tell you that uh, we are monitoring this carefully. You know, if people are doing a lot of betting online, we can we can see if there looks like there's a problem there and we can uh, alert them. We've looked at the history with other states. I think this is something we can manage and manage well to the benefit of the state. I want to fit in one more call, Governor Lamont. So many people are waiting to speak with you. Christian in West Hartford. Christian, quickly go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, vaccinations are the response, as are other mandates, closures, what have you. I want to know what you've learned from this from a fiscal standpoint for small businesses as we've all been closed and, you know, we're going to be facing increased taxes going forward. Is there anything the state is going to be doing going forward after this to prepare for the next respiratory virus or what have you? I just think there's a lot of things we can learn from this to prepare for the next version, whatever we have. Yeah, thanks for that question, Christian. I, I think I, I heard it right, which is um, how do we think about what could be uh, another pandemic? This 100-year storm may be a 10-year storm, and we better prepare for it. In particular, how does that impact small businesses? And look, small businesses got hit and hit hard, and um, you have been incredibly creative. You know, we, we never closed things down totally, I hope, but we said only for pickup to start up. And then we limited the number of people who could uh, be indoors. And small business appreciated, restaurants appreciated that um, it wasn't simply, you know, coming from the governor. They knew that they had to earn the confidence of consumers to go back into their store. They had to earn the confidence of employees, you know, to come back into work. So I think that's one of the learning lessons. Um, I, I really appreciate the fact that the federal government um, was very helpful. And David Lehman and our team provided the bridge loans to keep our businesses intact as best we could, you know, as they as they struggled through the worst of the pandemic. So we get this, um, you know, terrible thing behind us. We're ready to hit the ground running and our stores are ready to open. And I'd like to think your store is opening. I'd like to thank consumers are beginning to knock on the door and come back in. That's Governor Ned Lamont. Uh, Governor, I hope we can sit down for a full hour when this pandemic is over. So many people still waiting to speak with you, but we appreciate your time today. Thanks, Lucy. Let's do it. Thank <laughs> you.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our time was short with Governor Lamont, but we're still a lot of time to talk about what we just heard, including some analysis and perspective from Hartford Current columnist Kevin Rennie. That's coming up right after the break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. We were hoping to have more time with him, but he had to run. Joining us now on Zoom, Hartford Current columnist Kevin Rennie. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's nice to be here. So I, I wanted will, to get... I will do my best to hold up the standard the governor <laughs> set. Well, I wanted to get your perspective on what you just heard from the governor. I mean, we covered a lot related to uh, reopening this vaccine plan. Is it equitable? And also talking a little bit about his emergency authority. So first off, just give me your, some of your thoughts. It's clear that the governor has lived this for more than a year. He is uh, he is conversant and knowledgeable in uh, in, in every aspect of uh, of the pandemic that certainly has its affected Connecticut, and he seems he seems really candid about the experience and what's worked, what hasn't worked, and uh, how how we go forward. And also, at least on your show, sounds receptive to uh, ideas from um, from callers. So uh, I, I I do think, and I, I would add my my something that I've watched carefully all along. For the most part, he has exercised his extraordinary powers uh, uh, prudently. Not always, but for the most part, more than most human beings, given the 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 virtually unlimited power that he had for uh, for a large part of this pandemic. I I do think he's he's been prudent and uh, responsible. So there has been some pushback, of course, on extending uh, these emergency authorities. We heard from some Republican leaders who don't think this is necessary. And so I just wanted to talk through what you're seeing in terms of this playing out, uh, which lawmakers are in the room to negotiate this and which ones are left out, Kevin. I, I do think I, 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 I think the governor indicated indicated um, uh, a couple of times that he's he's ready for the legislature to, uh, to start acting and invited them to. Uh, of course, his first year, it, it all seemed so long ago, but in, in 2019 and his first year as governor, he had a terrible time with the legislature on his on his hallmark issue, which was uh, uh, imposing tolls on working people in Connecticut. And um, and he failed. And he's he, he for months, he seemed kind of bitter about that. Last year, he didn't have to deal with the legislature. So now that they're back, it, it is it is a new experience in some ways. And uh, I, you know, I think he's right. If if they're in session, they can make changes to the law uh, on emergency powers. The things that the governor uh, needs to do, they can they can adopt in the legislature. Things that he doesn't need, they can discard. I my impression was the governor himself thought that the his his uh, emergency powers should should be coming to an end next month, and it's Democratic legislators who seem so eager to uh, to to abandon their Democratic 
uh, prerogatives as an equal branch of government. It is so it must be frustrating for him in some <laughs> ways. It is interesting when we think about um, how quickly the legislature uh, can act. I mean, you're a former legislator. Will the General Assembly be capable of making some tough decisions rather quickly down the road? Well, they can. You know, there is there's a process in the legislature that allows emergency bills with the leadership can together put forward emergency bills that can be acted on immediately. And uh, that authority will still be there. They they now know how they can gather. It's becoming safer and safer to uh, for, for people to get together. I do think that it's um, uh, it's bad for everyone that that the public does not have direct access to legislators because the legislative office building is closed. And I think it's especially bad for legislators that they don't have the spontaneity that uh, that's an important part of, of the legislative process because they're not with each other. And you know, probably most most legislators will have had their first vaccination given by, by because of the age cohorts uh, in a few weeks. So um, I, I think they should want to go back to. Uh, legislating the way they used to, although maybe some changes in the substance of what they do to Connecticut, but, you know, the process, they want to resume that. Uh, and also it will set uh, it will set an important example for the for the rest of the state. Kevin Rennie, we ran out of time with the governor to talk about uh, the state house approving a bill just last week that would give lawmakers more say in how the state uses $2.6 billion in federal pandemic relief funds. So can you talk through with us um, again um, how you see this playing out in terms of the governor um, having to disclose how they want to use the money and how lawmakers have priorities as well? Governor can veto that bill. He uh, he he's, he has that right, <laughs> no matter no matter what sort of situation the state is in. He can veto it. Uh, he can try to negotiate changes. I you know this sounds a little bit like an like an attempt to have a a, a local version of earmarks, and that is uh, 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 getting money for favored projects. Uh, it's a little early to tell, but. Uh, there are some restraints, uh, uh, some constraints on on how states can use that money. So uh, the governor might want to have his uh, who's his budget director, who can be you know who who can be quite firm in uh, in in her her uh, talks with the legislature. Explain to them, you know, you you don't have the discretion that you may think you have, and uh, if it if it if this leads to a confrontation between the governor and the legislature. That's all right. That's all right. Um, it might uh, might limber everyone up from uh, from what's uh, what we've lived through in the past year. You mentioned OPM Budget Director Melissa McCaw, and when uh, we hear lawmakers wanting the governor to set aside uh, more funding uh, for uh, you know, initiatives or organizations that have really seen their funding cut, uh, including so many nonprofits that provide the bulk of social services on behalf of the state, uh, there's a real fear that uh, while they can, they might be able to do this with the federal stimulus money, what happens in the, the out years after 2024, Kevin? Well, that's always the, that's always the issue. Is that when when you get a uh, when the state receives a 
a boost, a one-time payment from the federal government, very few people then want to want to recognize that okay, that was that was for a temporary period. They wanted to continue, and then it's viewed as cuts in services and cuts in funding, uh, and that will be a very big challenge uh, for Governor Lamont uh, or and whoever, if, assuming he well, if he's reelected, it will be a continuing challenge. If he's not, it will be a new challenge. One of the, uh, uh, you know, any governor is going to face the problem of there are limited ways to cut state spending because of the um, long term agreements with state employees. And the governor has said he does not want to lay off state workers. So um, the the only way to um, to keep some of these funds uh, continuing to social service organizations, for example, would be to raise taxes. And uh, he's, you know, he's one year away from an election. He is certainly not going to want to talk about that. <laughs> so it's the continuing challenge of what happens when you receive a, uh, a big federal payment for a specific emergency uh, condition. What do you do after that? Because uh, people feel like once the, as recipients, once they start getting that money, they don't want it to go away. And they are very skillful at showing the consequences of it of it uh, being reduced. Speaking of money, uh, we talked briefly with the governor about this new gambling expansion deal with the two tribes, um, him talking about this could bring a lot of money for Connecticut, something that could help when we think about the slot revenues that the Connecticut has de- been dependent on, billions of dollars that has been decreasing steadily. I think the Connecticut lottery actually makes more revenue now for the state than than slots. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how this deal came came about and Poor East Windsor, out of luck <laughs> for this uh, slots parlor. Well, well, I would say they, they their luck returned when the <laughs> slot shack uh, uh, was abandoned. I, I, you know, there were there were questions about whether there were doubts that that was ever going to be built. I didn't think it should be built because it's not on tribal it's 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 not on tribal land, and that's the. Um, the premise of the um, uh, the tribal nations having the right to operate uh, gaming, uh, casino gaming in Connecticut, is based on the based on where the reservations are, and uh, there's not there there's not one in East Windsor. That was solely to try to blunt the impact of the MGM casino in Springfield, and the MGM casino in Springfield, I think, has has turned out to be, if not a bust, certainly. It has not met the expectations that the state set for it, even be- that the state of Massachusetts set for it, even before the pandemic. So the East Windsor, the East Windsor uh, uh, box of slots became really unnecessary at, uh, once it became clear that uh, the MGM casino was really no threat to the uh, the tribal uh, uh, casinos. But I, I think the governor has 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 managed to work out a terrible terrible deal with the tribes and uh there's no reason to give the tribes uh, a monopoly on on uh i gaming uh there there are plenty of other companies that can do this they should have been given the opportunity to propose make proposals their proposals might and the governor points out it's a lot of money it's a lot of money 
their proposals might have uh, uh, provided the state with even more money because this is the business they're in. The casinos are not the two tribal casinos. They're not in the business of high gaming. They, these other, other companies are. We should take advantage of uh, of their knowledge, their entrepreneurship, um, and uh, and and really uh, add a important element of competition into this. And uh, the governor didn't, and I, and I really do think he failed. And the lottery, the state lottery corporation, has been nothing but trouble to give them really the attempt, the, the ability or power to open gaming parlors on street corners as as as, as pseudo entertainment centers is is well, you do not want to bet on that. A terrible gamble by the governor. And I, you know, as I said, he's he's done a very good job on COVID. He's terrible on changes in uh, in gaming policy. So, talk more about uh, permitting other companies to get in on this, and and how sport tech, um, how they will play out in this. Do you anticipate lawsuits uh, because this uh, deal has been reached, and people feel like they should be able to have a a cut as well, Kevin? I want you know. Well, of course, MGM uh, was was uh, was very litigious minded in the with the East Windsor Casino, and um, uh, I would not be surprised if uh, if other companies that have had you know, as the governor said, they're doing great in other states. Well, why wouldn't we? Want, why wouldn't we want them to do great in Connecticut if we make the decision to expand gaming? Let's open it up to proposals from the people who already know how to do it. The tribes have no experience in, in this. They're casino operators. So, you know, maybe they'll partner with others, but let's have a festival of competition on this. And, um, you, you know, I, I believe the legislature is going to have to decide whether to, to adopt any of these proposals. So let them have some choices. And uh, let's see what uh, what is um, let's see who has the best. For instance, as as uh, you were, the issue was raised in your interview, let's see who has some who has the the best ideas for addressing uh, problem gambler gamblers, and um, what uh, what how many points do you get for that in your proposal? Uh, a lot of this was done. Well, all of this was done. Um, uh, in secret, and uh, it's, it's sort of surprising that for a former newspaper editor, Governor Lamont does have an exaggerated taste for secrecy in his administration, and the um, uh, the pandemic has, has only magnified that. But now he's he's doing the same thing with with this gaming proposal, mm. and uh, it's it'd be very costly for uh, people in Connecticut. So you mentioned that the General Assembly has to weigh in and pass a bill related to expanding gambling. Also, the Interior Department will also have to weigh in. Uh, before yes. we run out of time, yes. uh, let's uh, finish and, and talk a little bit about some lawmakers who were very well known uh, in uh, Connecticut politics, both passing away, uh, Billy Ciotto and House Majority Leader David Pudlin. Yes, uh, very sad weekend uh, for people in, uh, certainly people in, in uh, central Connecticut, who they represented for many years, but also for, for people all over Connecticut who were involved in, in politics at any level. Uh, Billy Seattle was a, a beloved figure, a entertainment, uh, entertaining guy, 
knew how to get things done in state government. He had been, uh, before he was elected to the Senate, we were elected in the same year. He lasted there a lot longer than I did. Uh, but he really, he really knew how to move the levers. And he was of state government. And he was very generous with other legislators, Republican or Democrat, in helping them with problems that he had more experience in solving. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that's unheard of, but it's that is not a uh, that is that is not a characteristic that every legislator brings to uh, to state politics and uh, and he was also a character with that cigar and his voice very distinctive voice uh, and you know politics doesn't have a lot of characters in it anymore and I think that um, uh, I think that 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 everybody just he, he was he was naturally likable. And um, David Putlin was part of a group of legislators who were sort of who were uh, recruited in the 1980s by um, uh, Irving Stolberg when he was briefly the uh, minority leader. Republicans uh, controlled the House for two years after President Reagan's landslide. And he recruited a, a an array of liberal local Democrats who went on to uh, to all sorts of uh, important positions, including uh, Nancy Wyman, who was the lieutenant, who was the lieutenant governor, and uh, Joe Courtney, who still serves in Congress. And David Pudlin, I think, was part of that. And he continued in um, after leaving the House. He continued in uh, in politics and organizing politics, and um, and uh, I think with uh, locally and also with statewide organizations, he was really committed to uh, democratic politics. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, with us here, Kevin Rennie, who's a Harper column, current columnist. We appreciate your time. You can also follow Kevin at Daily Ructions. Kevin, thank you. You're welcome, Lucy. Thank you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Matt Dwyer produced today's show. Tess Terrible was on the phones. And Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Back tomorrow.